Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. It's October. Surprise! The 2016 presidential campaign has had an October surprise. Of course, you're supposed to have one of them, but this entire month of October has felt like a surprise in the campaign of 2016. Latest thing to jump out from behind the curtain is the decision by FBI Director Comey to announce that his team of investigators have a new batch of emails that might or might not shed light on the closed investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of her private server. The new information was contained on a laptop owned by the husband of Hillary Clinton's right-hand woman, Huma Abedin, her husband, Anthony Weiner, former congressman, who is at this date under investigation for sending explicit texts to a 15-year-old. Now, everyone hearing this knows these details, but at times uh, with this election, you get the feeling that you're at the beginning of a dark period in history. People in the future in some post-apocalyptic world will replay the tapes of what happened in 2016 as they look for the initiating event into a into what led to the apocalypse. So when they're doing so in some mountain cave in 2242, I just want to make sure that there is an accurate record of what happened. But that's not our topic today. The topic of close aides, October surprises, the FBI, and the whiff of uh, scandal is reminding me of an event in the 1964 presidential race. There was an October surprise disclosed at a little bit about the same time, a tiny bit earlier in the race. A close aide to Lyndon Johnson, Walter Jenkins, as close as Huma Abedin, was caught in a scandal that ignited a conversation in the campaign about homosexuality, moral behavior, investigative tactics, Cold War fears of national security lapses, and solicited a response from LBJ at the end that would make Donald Trump proud. And there's also another element of the response that LBJ had that could offer a lesson to the foot-dragging Clinton team. So uh, this October surprise didn't lose the election of 1964 for Johnson, but may very well have shaped his next term and the troubles that it had. On October 7, 1964, Lyndon Johnson's 46-year-old top aide, Walter Jenkins, attended a party with his wife celebrating the opening of the new Washington offices of Newsweek. The party was thrown by Catherine Graham, wife of the late Newsweek and Washington Post publisher Phil Graham, and who would later become a Washington institution herself. After a few drinks, Jenkins said he was returning to the White House. His, his wife went off to a dinner party. Jenkins often worked late into the night at the White House, so this was a, a normal thing for him to do. But before going back to the White House, he walked to the YMCA, located not really that close to the White House, but uh, close enough. There he met a Hungarian immigrant um, who was also referred to as a timekeeper uh, and also as a former Army uh, enlisted man. Anyway, his name was Andy Choka. He was about 60 years old, and the two entered a pay toilet stall and engaged in what the papers would later describe as an indecent act. The two men were unaware that in the adjacent shower room, two police officers, maybe even more in the retelling of this, at one point Johnson says there were four police officers, which we'll get to later, some number of police officers were in the shower. It's fun to stay at the YMCA, but they were there lying in wait. The basement restroom was a known location for illicit encounters, and the police were there to catch anybody who might be doing anything illicit. So, bang, they arrested the two gentlemen at 8.15 in the evening. They were booked 
it went into the police records and then Jenkins and Choka paid 50 bucks and they were off. The next day, Jenkins went to work as if nothing happened. Now, what kind of a work did Walter Jenkins do? Well, he was uh, basically LBJ's right-hand man. He dealt with the most sensitive personal and public parts of the presidency. He'd served Johnson since begin in 1939. Shortly after Johnson won election as a congressman from Texas, he then left to go in the army and during World War II. But then he left the military as a major, went right back to working for Johnson, although he did run for the House in 1951, but he lost. Anyway, he later worked for Johnson in the Senate staff when he was majority leader and remained with him as he became, went into the vice presidency and then was even more crucial because there he was, the right-hand man, after Kennedy's assassination. Here's a quote from the Washington Post. No one worked as hard for Lyndon Johnson as he did, referring to Jenkins. That was typical of the comment heard in the government today about Walter Wilson Jenkins. Everyone spoke of his dedication to President Johnson, of the days without end that he was at his desk past midnight, of his self-effacement in the president's service. More than half of Walter Jenkins' life has been dedicated to Lyndon Johnson. So that obviously was a description of him after this breaks into the press. But at the state of our narrative at the moment, it's not in the press yet. It's just happened on the 7th of October. No one knows about it, including the President of the United States. So what was the state of the campaign when this was going on? October 10th, a few days after the incident, there's a recording of uh, Lyndon Johnson talking to Jenkins, in which Johnson is really pressing Jenkins for the latest poll numbers. There's Johnson is trouncing Goldwater, but there's an urgency in his voice. And there's nothing in, by the way, there's nothing in Jenkins' voice that suggests anything is amiss from the previous three nights before. Johnson's urgent. He wants to know about the poll numbers and what's changed. And maybe it's he's just he's a competitor. But it might also be that Johnson was worried that even with his lead at this late date in this in the campaign, things might turn on him. And to give you a sense of where the campaign stood, and also to ring the first chime of historical echo, here I'll describe the Republican campaign against Johnson, which created the context and the sticky backdrop. Is there a sticky backdrop where chimes are involved? I'm not sure. But let me dismount from this metaphor the the conditions in which the Jenkins news landed to give you some sense of why it was so volatile. Here I'm relying on Robert Dalek's flawed giant, Lyndon Johnson and his times, 1961 to 1973. So where to begin? Where to begin? Okay, so there in March and August, there were a series of articles that appeared in the, in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Star, and Life magazine, raising questions about how Johnson had amassed his fortune of between 9 and $14 million. The Emporia, Kansas Gazette, wrote a scathing editorial describing Johnson as, quote, the most corrupt man ever to enter the White House, end quote. The Republicans began running that piece from the Emporia Gazette in newspapers. So you have fiscal dealings that are uh, being brought up by Republicans. Then Republicans began distributing, and especially in the South and West, copies of a book called A Texan Looks at Linden by Everett's Haley. The book was basically one of the books that we're quite familiar with now, particularly about Hillary Clinton, that was a basically thorough attack, bringing every negative story that had ever been told anywhere about it. And it was basically kind of a right-wing smear job, which, like today, people might dismiss, except that, according to Dalek, a White House political aide, Larry O'Brien, reported that, quote, these books are being distributed by the Republican Party, as well as by the John Birchers and other right-wing organizations. They are available at all newsstands. They are being read and having some impact. At every meeting, our campaign leaders agreed the books are hurting. Some weapons should be placed in the hands of our people to counteract 
the effect of these books. So we see this kind of stuff sloshing around on the internet today while it was sloshing around on newsstands back in 1964. Johnson started to worry that this smear campaign, uh, again, this is all on sort of self-enrichment by Johnson in the same way there are charges of self-enrichment by the Clintons, that's going on. So then there were also rumors of hidden corruptions that the Republicans talked about in terms of when LBJ was in office. So there was a story about LBJ using funds for personal use when he visited Hong Kong in 1961 as a vice president that had to be investigated. There were also rumors that Johnson had kidney tumors that were much more serious than his heart condition. So uh, Navy radiologists had leaked this to a newspaper. Um, so there was also a medical claim about Johnson that sounds familiar. So you've got the financial malfeasance before coming into office, the malfeasance in office, and then there was Goldwater's attack on Johnson's morals. The Republicans ran an ad in the last month of the campaign that featured an announcer saying, quote, what has happened to America? We've had the good sense to create lovely parks, but we're afraid to use them after dark. We build libraries and galleries to hold the world's great art treasures, and we permit the world's greatest collection of smut to be freely available. So and it had pictures of empty parks and, and a seedy newsstand. And then there was two Johnson aides in office, Bobby Baker and Billy Saul Estes, who were embroiled in their own scandals. So Johnson had scandals ongoing in the uh, administration at the time. And then Goldwater, in one of these ads, spoke to the camera and said, quote, the national morality by example and by persuasion should begin at the White House and have the good influence to reach out to every corner of the land. Now, this is not the case today because our country has lacked leadership that treats public office as a public trust. Trust in that sense being piggy bank. The Republican National Committee had its own ad that it was going to run. It showed urban riots, a woman in a topless swimsuit, a Lincoln Continental speeding down a dirt road with beer cans flying from the windows. And Goldwater actually stopped that from running that ad. He said, quote, I'm not going to be made out as a racist. You can't show it. So the Republicans shelved the film. But that series of uh, attacks, and particularly the moral attack, is where we are in the state of the campaign in early October 1964. So now it's the 14th of October. Lyndon Johnson uh, learns now, seven days after it's happened, of the, of the Jenkins arrest. A reporter from the Washington Story had discovered Jenkins' name on a police blotter. When an editor called the White House to get the confirmation, he was told Jenkins would call back. Instead, Jenkins went to see Abe Fortas, a member of Johnson's kitchen cabinet, a lawyer who worked in close consultation with Clark Clifford, who you'll remember from the Truman years. And they were the fixers, and they tended to this kind of business for Johnson. So Fortas and Johnson have a phone conversation. Now, there's a little historical confusion about when Johnson actually learned about Jenkins. Some accounts suggest that he might have learned about it well before the 14th. Those accounts aren't super convincing, but I don't know. And there's also, when you listen to Johnson and his own reaction on the 14th, when he gets a call from this call from Abe Fortas, he seems like a person who is fresh in a moment of fresh discovery. On the other hand, he was a really good fibber. So let's hear a little taste of the phone call. Walter came over to see me this morning, and uh, he uh, was talking about a quite serious situation. Okay, so you can't really hear Abe Fortas. Unfortunately, it's a great phone call. Uh, so here, uh, I'm going to rely 
on the transcript from the wonderful Michael Beschloss, the historian who carefully and patiently went through all of the LBJ tapes, put them in a two-volume book, uh, which you really should get. The one that I'm using for this is called Reaching for Glory. It's wonderful not only because you have the transcripts, but then you also have all of Beschloss's context about what was going on. Here's what Fortas says. Okay, he starts the phone call conversation by starting on the spin. Here's Fortas. He says, there we have a, quote, very serious problem that came up today. Walter came over to see me this morning, and he got involved in a quite serious situation. We hope that we have it under control. The net net of it is this. Walter's doctor was over here a little while ago, and Walter is, on doctor's orders, going into George Washington Hospital for hypertension and acute nervous exhaustion. And he'll be in there for some days. Now, because of a... Situation we'll have to explain to you in detail. We have to handle it this way. Walter's secretary has been authorized to tell people that call that Walter has been put in the hospital for hypertension and nervous exhaustion. We believe that unpleasant publicity, very unpleasant publicity, has been averted. I think if you're asked about it, you should say only that you have heard that Walter Jenkins is in the hospital on doctor's orders and that you are sorry about it and that you hope to get more details and that is all. Clark, do you agree? And then there's a pause in the conversation. Then he comes back and says, Clark says that's right, and don't say anything more. It would be a mistake to make a big play about Walter having worked himself into a state of exhaustion. I know that sounds strange, Mr. President, but it's a weird situation, and we want to fill you in on it at the first moment that you say, and I guess Clark and I are the only ones that know all the details. LBJ starts to say, well, is it? And Fortas interrupts. Have I gotten this all across to you? LBJ says, no. <laughs> well, is it all right to talk on the phone? LBJ says, yes, I think so. This is what a briefing sounds like when you want to brief a president without letting him in on what's going on so that you can provide him with plausible deniability. So you say, basically, if anybody asks you about Joey, say you don't know anything about Joey, and then run into the other room. So they're telling you something serious about Joey, but not telling you the actual facts so that you can't someday be subpoenaed or have to stand up and say, or they want you to be able to stand up and say, I knew nothing about Joey. And you'd be right. It's also funny at the end of this that Fortas asks if he can talk, and LBJ says yes. Fortas is worried about it being recorded or somebody listening in, and of course somebody was, and and the person that was listening in was history. And we can thank LBJ for that lovely recording. So at this point in the phone call, Fortas tells the story. He says, in some quite considerable detail, he says Jenkins doesn't remember anything and that he blacked out. He also explains that this wasn't the first time. This is a crucial detail. In 1959, Jenkins was arrested in the same YMCA bathroom for doing the, exactly the same thing. Johnson, listening to him, is tense and incredulous. He can't believe it. He wants to know who's involved. Some bum, Fortas tells him about the other man. Johnson can't hear, and he keeps yelling to Fortas to speak up. It's the sound of, a, sound of a man who is urgent to get to the bottom of things and who has, it sounds like, fresh information coming into those floppy ears. Here's how Johnson described receiving the news to his biographer, Doris Kearns Goodwin. This is Johnson, as Goodwin recounts it. I couldn't have been more shocked about Walter Jenkins if I'd, if I'd heard that Lady Bird had killed the Pope. It just wasn't possible. And then I started piecing things together. The Republicans believed that the question of morality was their trump card. This was their only chance at winning. Anyone who got in the way would end up as corpses. Well, the night of October 7, the night of the arrest, I'd been invited to a party given by Newsweek, which had been owned by Phil Graham, my good friend, and who had told Kennedy to make me vice president. I couldn't go, so I asked Walter to go in my place. Now the waiters at the party were from the Republican National Committee, and I know Walter had one drink and started on another and doesn't remember anything after that. So that must be the explanation. 
what's interesting about that to me, so what he's talking about the Republican National Committee, at one point, I think Johnson believed that the RNC, which was next door, the waiters had kind of come over. But what's important here is that since the real damage of the story was that Johnson might be knowingly have allowed a security risk to stay on his staff, and that's the uh, that's the key, which I'll do a little more on in a minute. But it's the key is that this is a national security issue that homosexual could be blackmailed, and therefore somebody who had such a high ranking security clearance and such a high ranking security role could be blackmailed by the communists for his homosexuality, and that put a national security at risk. So if Johnson knew about all that, then he'd be culpable for allowing somebody so risky and such a close position. So perhaps that's why he has to pretend this is all fresh to him on the 14th. Oh my God, it's such a surprise. I didn't know anything about this about Walter. Not only that he'd been arrested in 1959, but he had these proclivities at all. At this point, we interject with Jack Schaefer, a friend to the podcast and mankind, a writer for Politico, a press critic and historian who wrote in Slate about this in the context of another matter. But in writing about this, Schaefer brings up and reminds us about Johnson's ability with the truth. And he has a great quote from George Reedy, who was Johnson's press secretary. And he writes, quote, you know, one of the things about Lyndon Johnson that you always have to be careful about, whatever Johnson tells you at any given moment, he thinks is the truth in his own mind. I don't think the man ever told a whopper in his whole life. So this is both important about Johnson So in other words, he could have been having that strong reaction on the telephone because he was pretending and because when he pretended he thought it was true, there's none of the emotional cues that we would normally notice when a person isn't telling the truth. This is also true, of course, when we evaluate candidates today, candidates who seem so easy in their ability to to say things that aren't so and make themselves uh, believe it themselves. So at this point, it's the 14th of October, and Johnson fires Jenkins, or Jenkins resigns. It's obviously he has to go. Mildred Stiegel, uh, who worked for Johnson almost as long as Jenkins and had worked closely with Jenkins, wrote her recollection of the moment. Quote, one of the saddest days of the president and my lives was the day President Johnson asked for Walter's resignation due to reported misconduct. It was a tremendous loss because Walter was like the president's right arm and the most valuable member of the staff, and I think the most capable. I can't begin to count the number of times the president asked me, what do you think happened? My answer was always the same. I simply don't know. So it was a huge deal because of this security question in the New York Times when the news broke, editorialized thusly. Here's the Times. There can be no place on the White House staff or in the upper echelons of government for a person of markedly deviant behavior. Every government official should have a security check. President Johnson undoubtedly understands that that now, if he did not before, it is astonishing that this has apparently been left a matter of discretion. So the question was, how, if this happened in 59, was he allowed to get so close to the president? Well, Johnson isn't interested in that at the moment. What he's interested in is he thinks it's a setup by the Republicans or the Goldwater campaign. Here's what he says to Fortas on that first phone call on the 14th of October. Johnson. Yeah, but I thought maybe you might be talking to him, Jenkins, and you might find out if it looks like there's any claim of a frame-up, Fortas. When I talked to Jenkins, what he told me indicates that he just started out for a walk and then ended up over there, which would negate the idea of a plant, LBJ. Nobody suggested to him to go over there to the YMCA. Fortas, that's right. He went alone. Where from? From the Newsweek cocktail party. Johnson is, again, I don't know. You know, who knows if Johnson was putting up a show for Fortas and he knew all this beforehand. It really doesn't seem like it. And he's he's uh, questioning him again and again about how it happened, where it happened, who it happened. And 20, six days later on the 20th, Johnson's on the phone with the FBI. And again, he's asking about a setup. He told 
the FBI, number two, saying that Republican operatives might have persuaded the waiters at the Newsweek party to get Jenkins drunk to frame him. So that's a contemporaneous description of the waiters at the party that we then hear the echo of in Doris Kearns Goodwin's account. Johnson also calls a labor leader, Joseph Keenan, with his conspiracy theory. And here, this is a, a better audio. We'll listen to a little bit of that. Uh, we found a man this morning at the park policeman that's uh, going around saying Walter Jenkins uh, 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 propositioned him and uh, the FBI thinks they've got him traced to the Republican National Committee and they paid him to do it. The times are wrong, the dates are wrong, and Walter Jenkins is established other places by the diary. And, and then when they started making him clam up, while he, when they started showing him this, why he broke down and said he wouldn't talk anymore. But uh, they, they admit in the New York Times this morning that they they had this information two days afterwards, and Hoover's convinced that they, that they had it before it happened and, and were parties to it. Here's some more audio of Johnson with a detailed description of the event to newspaper publisher John S. Knight. Listen to how detailed he is in talking about the timeline after Jenkins left the Newsweek party, uh, which he refers to as a K. Graham party because Graham was the publisher. And then he, the Miller he refers to at the end is Goldwater's running mate, William Miller, who's a congressman that Goldwater said he chose because, quote, he drives Johnson nuts with his Republican activism. So here is Johnson talking about the possibility of a frame up six days after he's learned about it. So this is on the 20th of October. Uh, he left the K. Graham party at 8.10, and he was at the Capitol of 3rd and Independence, way across town, at 8.35. So it all happened in 25 minutes. And Hoover is very upset because they had four policemen there. Uh, that's very abnormal. One might walk in, maybe two. They had four for the occasion. And counting the time he walked and the time he traveled, it'd think it'd take 20 minutes to get the capital. Uh, all of this happened in 25 minutes, and uh, uh, the Republican committee knew about it long before any of us. Uh, it was published on Saturday that uh, Miller knew it in his campaign train. Uh, he th they think they've got a fellow today. So on the one hand, Johnson's thinking about a frame-up, and he's got two other things he wants to do. Uh, one, minimize the security claim in the election, and two, well, I guess these are connected, really. So he gets on the phone first to the FBI, to, to Hoover, and says he needs a report saying that Jenkins didn't threaten any national security. Now, he knows that Hoover's going to do this for him. Uh, we'll get to Hoover's own private behavior in a minute, but he knows that Hoover's going to do this for him because any security problem from allowing Jenkins to work in the White House after the 1959 arrest would have been because the FBI itself was at fault for failing to investigate Jenkins properly. Johnson also calls his attorney general, Nick Kotzenbach, and asks him to issue his own report. And again, I'm relying here on um, Beschloss's book. Here's how Beschloss sets up the little conversation here. After a harrowing night, Johnson awakens. Harrowing night. We're now on the 15th. So it's the night after Johnson's hurt. After a harrowing night, Johnson awakens in the Waldorf Towers in New York City and asks his acting attorney general to supervise the issuance of an official report declaring that Jenkins has not endangered national security. He shows his suspicions that the Republicans will broaden the scandal to launch a new attack on Johnson for his connection to scandals involving, involving Billy Saul Estes and Bobby Baker. 
So you know how the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton emails all get kind of connected into a big peanut cluster? That's what Johnson was worried about. Here he is on the phone to Katzenbach. I don't know how quick we can get this report. This is the report clearing Jenkins of any national security issue. But we ought to get one just as quick as we humanly can. I don't know where this thing may lead. Abe Fortas tells me there is no indication that there's any security involved at all. Katzenbach, I would think not. LBJ. Abe thinks that Choka, that's the gentleman from the bathroom stall, is just a professional, and this is a one-time incident. Never heard of each other before. I would just as soon believe you and Ladybird had been living together every night. LBJ. Jenkins and Deke Deloach, who's uh, Deke Deloach, who's the FBI liaison to the White House, are just about as close as two men could be intimately associated. He handled everything that Deke, the FBI man, brought over to the White House. Every report he had. So the point there is, there's a close relationship between the FBI and the White House, which is both why there's a security risk, but also why the FBI can be a both uh, fact witness, in other words, Jenkins never mishandled information, but also why FBI's on the hook, because they dealt with him every day. So they were dealing every day with this person they should have known had this thing in his past. Back to Johnson. So you ought to get him to really put every man he's got in town on it, meaning making the report, because it's going to be nothing but a debate until it is, meaning until the report is issued that exonerates Jenkins for handing over any security issues or being a security issue or susceptible to blackmail. Back to Johnson. I don't think there's any question that this will be a bombshell and be an issue in this campaign. In the meantime, we've got to leak everything we know. No connection with security, just a question of a sick man. Very sick. It just shocks me as much as it does as if my daughter committed treason. Katzenbach, yeah. LBJ, we've got to protect the office of the presidency. This thing's just got two weeks. We have got to be a little careful. So again, Johnson protesting a lot that this is so shocking to him. Again, he would very, very, very much be in a position to want to do that, because if there's any evidence that he knew about it beforehand, he would be culpable for this security breach. Anyway, Johnson turns out was right about the GOP. A lot of newsmen had received anonymous tips about Jenkins' arrest that was on that campaign blotter, and they received those tips right before the Republican national chairman, Dean Birch, issued a statement charging the White House is desperately trying to suppress a major news story affecting the national security. Now, it turns out there the White House was trying to suppress it, but the fact that the RNC knew about it gave Johnson his suspicions. But remember, there's the difference between the RNC setting it up as a trap and the RNC learning about it on the blotter and then making it, it getting its way into the newspapers. We should step back for a moment and just talk about how homosexuals were thought of about at the time. There was a, basically a ban on gay civilian workers at all federal government agencies and departments. And in, and in a famous letter from 1966, which is two years after this happened, but it's famous in the history of gay rights, here's how homosexuality was viewed at the time for federal workers. So the letter was written by Lyndon Johnson Civil Service Commission Chairman John Macy Jr., and he was basically arguing against an effort by gay rights activists to argue that there should be no ban on gays in the workplace because homosexuality was an identifiable class of citizens deserving constitutional protection. In other words, it was, an innate, it was an innate part of your character, therefore you shouldn't be uh, discriminated against. Macy said, oh no, 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 this couldn't be done because homosexuality was an act. It was not a state of being. He said gay people had to be kept out of the government, citing other employees, quote, revulsion, apprehension caused by homosexual advances, solicitations, or assaults, and the, quote, unavoidable subjection of the sexual deviant to erotic stimulation through on-the-job use of the common toilet, shower, or living facilities. He also worried that, quote, the public 
who are required to deal with a known or admitted sexual deviant would not be able to handle it. This became known as the Revulsion Letter. In 1961, 35 people were separated from the State Department, 24 of them for being homosexuals. In 1960, 18 were fired, 16 of whom were gay. That's the kind of culture we're talking about at the time. So now I'm going to read you some headlines, because it's fun to read the headlines in kind of order, to see how an October surprise is covered in 1964, and how it follows the patterns we have today. First, there's the story about the news itself. Then there's the, the the moral questions, the security angles, then the poll consequences, then the questions of a cover-up, followed by the backlash story, defending Jenkins. Also, plenty of stories about what a world we live in. Okay, so here's the 15th of uh, October. Setback for Johnson. Disclosure of his aide's arrest raises questions for the political campaign. That's from the Times. Another one from the Times. GOP aide sees strong impact on campaign if Jen- in Jenkins' case. President's curious crew denounced by Goldwater. Senator makes no direct mention of Jenkins' case. Well, he wasn't mentioning it directly, but his campaign was having fun with it and trying to push out jingles like, all the way with LBJ, but don't go near the YMCA. And other Republicans were pushing it. His running mate, Miller. Here's a piece from the Chicago Tribune about, uh, in which there's a section on morality and government. The, the Republican professionals claim that Senator Goldwater is gaining strength. They say that what is helping him most is the issue of, quote, moral climate in the government, meaning, among other things, the revelation that White House aide Walter Jenkins had been arrested on a morals charge. Some of the Democratic strategists here are not sure how much damage the Jenkins affair will cause, but for the moment, they're worried. Ed Muskie, who's running in the Senate, is in a debate, and it's brought up this connection and this lack of morals. Jenkins isn't mentioned directly, but of course that's what's being brought up, and they're trying to tie Muskie to it. Muskie gets so angry, he refuses to shake his opponent's hand after the debate. More headlines. This is from the 16th. Rumors led to police blotter in Jenkins' case. Storm center in Capitol. Walter, Walter Wilson Jenkins. Security aspect of Jenkins' case cited by Miller. Miller being the running mate. Miller asks data on Jenkins' case, says Johnson owes nation an explanation on aid. Johnson friends called on press, sought to influence papers handling of Jenkins' claim. So those list of headlines I just gave you give you the two. So get the security aspect and now also the, the cover-up aspect, the White House trying to keep the newspapers from publishing this. Here's what the Chicago Tribune wrote about. It, it made its own claims about morality and most importantly, all the pe- So the morality piece is not just, oh, they're behaving badly, but how does a president let these people surround him? And here's the Chicago Tribune making this case. How does Lyndon Johnson collect these characters? I mean, what is the affinity that brings the depraved and corrupt into his inner circle? First, Billy Saul Estes, dear Billy in Lyndon's book, the greatest swindler in Texas history. And Bobby Baker. It's funny that that reference to Dear Billy reminds me of heck of a job brownie when George W. Bush complimented his FEMA director using phrases by the president to hang him on an association with a with a lame aide. Anyway, back to the Tribune. Then Bobby Baker, quote, my strong right arm. That's what Johnson called him. Johnson's protege, a secretary to the Senate Democratic majority. Baker, what a wheeler dealer inside backroom man. He wrote his own book about working for for, for uh, Johnson, and it's full of uh, things that would get you, you know, arrested or, like, y- your career would end if one of them leaked. Anyway, back to the Tribune. And now Walter Jenkins, Johnson's principal White House administrative assistant, his colleague and intimate of 25 years. Is it the blindness of misplaced loyalty that binds the president to such men until the scandal breaks before an incredulous people? 
Is it the weakness and vacillation which, in the character of a Harding, restrained him from the act of exposure where his cronies were concerned? Johnson is supposed to be acute and astute. Is it credible that in over a quarter of a century he could not read something of the character of an associate who was in constant daily communication with him? More than five and one-half years ago, the warning signs about Jenkins were already hoisted. His name was on the Washington police blotter as a sexual deviant. They were hoisted. So, there you go. This is another thing that Johnson's worried about, is this the moral charges that go back to him and his, and his capacity to judge character as a president. More headlines. Cover up on Jenkins charged by Nixon. Managed news again. That's, again, now we're in cover up. We got J- Nixon charging a cover up in 1964. Kitchell sees Jenkins' case having an effect on the election. Jenkins' case seen as a help for Goldwater. Attempt to soft-pedal Jenkins' story revealed. Top Democratic lawyers visited offices of Capitol Papers to make requests. The presidency, Capitol jarred by Jenkins' case. Jenkins' affair, trouble for Johnson. New rumors clogged political gutter. And on and on the stories go. Oh, here's another one. Perverts obstruct Washington's security. So, while this is all going on, Lady Bird calls her husband. She writes in her journal, My heart is aching today for someone who has reached the end point of exhaustion in dedicated service to his country. So she calls LBJ and makes a case for what she wants to do. I would like to do two things about Walter. Uh, I would like to offer him uh, the number two job at KTBC. Do you hear me? I wouldn't do anything along that line now. I just let them know generally through Tom that they have no problem in that connection. Go ahead, next. I, I don't think that's right. Uh, second, uh, when questioned, and I will be questioned, I'm going to say that this is incredible for a man that I've known all these years, a devout Catholic, the father of six children, a happily married husband, it can only be a small uh, a period of, of a nervous breakdown balanced against. I wouldn't say anything. I'd have a, uh, I just wouldn't be available for anything because it's not something for you to get involved in now. And she says, no, we got to do something because we'll lose the entire love and devotion of all the people who have been with us. And LBJ basically says, you talk to Clark Clifford. I'm busy and don't create any more problems than I've got. That's actually a quote. So while this is going on, those newspaper headlines I read you are are bouncing around in the newspaper. On the 20th of October, the president calls Billy Graham and he calls Billy Graham because he's had uh, his pollster Oliver Quayle conduct a flash poll on the impact of the story the poll actually said Americans didn't seem to care and um, and also the international news the Chinese had just had a nuclear test and Nikita Khrushchev was just ousted as the Soviet leader so plus I think the World Series is going on so there's a lot to distract but nevertheless Johnson is doing all kinds of things right he's got the FBI report going he's trying to leak things He's also telling, according to Beschloss, the FBI, that Jenkins had learned when he was in the Air Force Reserve with Goldwater that Goldwater had used prostitutes and that there was a paternity suit by a Houston woman. So his argument 
Johnson's to the FBI was that uh, because remember, Johnson and FBI are on the hook because they didn't know this about Jenkins. So they're kind of in cahoots here together. Johnson's argument was that an opponent with those kind of weaknesses in his private life wasn't going to come out and be loud and proud about uh, about Jenkins's problems. But anyway, I w- I've interrupted my discussion about Billy Graham. Billy Graham, Johnson calls Billy Graham, has Bill Moyers call him first and say, Johnson, you know, Graham should come spend the night at the White House. He's getting hit on morals. What do you do? You you bring in the nation's most famous pastor. And here's LBJ on the phone with uh, with Graham. Hello, Billy. How are you, my friend? Graham. Well, God bless you. I was telling Bill, that's Bill Moyers, that last night I couldn't sleep and I got on my knees and prayed for you that the Lord would just give you strength. LBJ, I told my sweet wife last night, we've got mental telepathy. I said, please, dear Lord, I need you more than I ever did in my life. I've got the Russians on one side of me. The Chinese are dropping bombs around, contaminating the atmosphere. And the best man I ever knew had a stroke and disease hit him. Now, that he's talking about Jenkins there, stroke, uh, because of the, this is the cover story. They've said that he's got hypertension and he's being checked out for nervous exhaustion. Back to Johnson talking to Graham. And I've been tied in here with my cabinet all day, and I'd like to make him come down and spend Sunday with me. Now, the him he's talking about there is actually Graham. So Graham responds, well, bless your heart. I would be glad to. I told Bill that there were two things. One, I just felt terribly impressed to tell you to slow down a little bit. I've been awfully worried about you physically. You've got this election, in, in my opinion, wrapped up, and you've got it wrapped up big. You know, when Jesus dealt with people with moral problems like dear Walter, and I was telling Bill I wanted to send my love and sympathy for him. Johnson says, thank you. I know the weakness of men, and the Bible says we're all sinners, and I just hope if you have any contact with him, him meaning Jenkins, you'll just give him my love and my understanding. Johnson, well, that mean more, that'll mean more than anything. Come down here Sunday evening and have dinner with us, and let's have a quiet visit and maybe have a little service Sunday morning in the White House itself. Graham, well, I'll be happy to. So, Johnson knows what he's doing. All right, so now the FBI offers its investigation, comes out on the 23rd of October, and here's what happens. They say that Jenkins had not compromised national security, and here's how the New York Times reports it. FBI Director Edgar J. Edgar Hoover today reported that President Johnson and Acting Attorney General Nicholas D. Katzenbach that the FBI's extensive investigation of Walter W. Jenkins, former assistant to the president, disclosed no information that Mr. Jenkins had compromised the security interests of the United States in any manner. At 9.05 p.m., upon learning that Mr. Jenkins had been arrested on a moral charge, President Johnson directed the FBI to institute a full and complete investigation. That's 9.05 on the 14th of October. The investigation launched that evening covered the full scope of Mr. Jenkins' life from his early years in Texas to the present time. More than 560 persons, including current and former neighbors, business associates, social acquaintances, and school classmates, were interviewed. Medical, financial, military, and police records were reviewed. Every logical available source was contacted to determine whether Mr. Jenkins had engaged in indecent acts on other occasions, whether the national security had been compromised, and why, following a morals arrest of Mr. Jenkins in 1959, and then Senate Majority Leader Johnson had not been notified. So as to the 1959 arrest, Jenkins had claimed that he'd been enticed by the arresting officer on that former occasion, That, and then on the 1964 charge that his mind was befuddled by fatigue, alcohol, physical illness, and lack of food. The report says that an, an extensive background investigation turned but no evidence and that the country was uh, was safe. And then it's, the report said this, a favorable appraisal of Mr. Jenkins' loyalty and dedication to the United States was given to the FBI by more than 300 of his associates, both business and social, representing divergent political backgrounds who were interviewed in this investigation. It concludes thusly. 
According to Mr. Hoover, the investigation which the FBI launched last week has disclosed that Mr. Jenkins had had limited association with some individuals who were alleged to be, or who admittedly are, sex deviants. Mr. Hoover stated that many of the persons interviewed observed that the January 1959 and October 1964 incidents occurred during periods of extreme, intense emotional strain and physical exhaustion in Mr. Jenkins' life. The conclusion that Jenkins participated in homosexual acts while seemingly walling him off from being gay seems to be exactly the definition of homosexuality that Mr. Hoover himself, who privately, according to some biographers, had numerous trysts with men, including lifelong affair with his number two, Clyde Tolson. That seems to be the way he defined it himself as well, although, of course, there's much controversy surrounding that. It's amazing at this period of time how much snooping around there was for homosexuality. There were other Johnson aides who were investigated by Hoover, and the Republican Party operatives also were pushing investigations in order to discredit the president by outing members of his staff. Hoover collected damaging personal information on powerful people, including those who worked for Johnson, in order to use it as leverage. And so there was a lot of basically hunting around for homosexuals. And it's you know, in Hoover's case, obviously, it's become accepted that his fascination with homosexuality or rumored homosexuality of the powerful in Washington had to do with his own deeply repressed feelings. Also, there's a very strange little sideline here, which is that uh, Hoover sends flowers to Jenkins' hotel room. I mean, so the rumors surrounding that are are incredible. I mean, one, that Hoover recognized a fellow traveler. It could have been what Hoover said about it at the time, which was Jenkins was somebody who had worked with the, the FBI so closely. So they were... Uh, just being nice. It could be that Hoover was saying to Jenkins, I know about you and I know about what's at the truth of this. So keep your mouth shut. I mean, who knows what what was up with that? But the flowers sent by Hoover to Jenkins when he's in the hospital. That's something. Anyway, Goldwater himself, you know, Miller talked about it. There was talk of morals. There was the curious crew at the White House. But Goldwater didn't go all the way to the wall with this, as we discussed in the previous 1964 episode on the fact magazine assault on goldwater Uh, and here's what goldwater wrote later in his autobiography it was a sad time for jenkins wife and children and i was not about to add to their private sorrow winning isn't everything some things like loyalty to friends or lasting principle are more important at this point in we're at the end of october before election day and here johnson throws his last shot so James Reston had written a piece while this scandal was going on saying President Eisenhower was embarrassed by a comparable morals charge against one of his own appointees during his first administration. And Drew Pearson wrote about the same thing in a little bit greater detail. A man named Arthur Vandenberg Jr., the son of a senator, had homosexuality problems and could not pass a security test, was the supposed charge. Campaigning in San Diego in the 28th of October, Johnson replied to a reporter's question about sexual deviates in his administration, responding that every administration has its scandals and noted that Eisenhower had faced a similar problem, referring presumably to Arthur Vandenberg, but also outing him, basically. And so that wasn't a very nice thing for Johnson to do. And Nixon and and Eisenhower, Eisenhower said he didn't know what he was talking about. Nixon called foul. It was a bit of dirty pool. People thought he was doing what Donald Trump sometimes does, which is make, you know, like his claim that FBI, that uh, Ted Cruz's father was involved in JFK's assassination, just totally making things up. But it turns out there was some basis for what Johnson was saying. On the 29th of October, leading clergymen, including Thomas Merton and Presbyterian leaders and Methodist bishops and the American Hebrew congregation president wrote, 
They issued a joint letter that condemned the voyeurism and purience of tabloid media during the Jenkins affair. Quote, we see the Jenkins episode as a case of human weakness. If there is a security factor involved, let that be dealt with on its own terms and let it not serve chiefly as an excuse for dwelling on this episode to cater to the purient curiosity or the self-righteousness of the part of the public. At this same time, uh, and this is a little personal detail, but at the same time that Jenkins was has to resign, Johnson also got rid of another close aide, Bob Waldron, who was somebody that I actually knew as a kid growing up in Washington. He was a friend of both my parents, even after they split. He was a great character. He was an interior decorator. He had to become an interior decorator because in the course of defending himself, Jenkins responded to the FBI report by clarifying a detail about how much time he'd spent in the company of people who were homosexuals. And he wrote, never in my years of government employ, with one single limited exception, did I associate with any person employed by any branch of the government or any other office, whether employed by the government or otherwise, known to me to be a homosexual. The one exception, he wrote, is Mr. Bob Waldron. The relevant facts in this case are as follows. And then he talked about how he had worked with Waldron, and he knew that Waldron was gay. Well, he added Waldron. Waldron had to resign. Which is a tragedy, but Waldron went on to have a happy life, but he was a collateral damage of this. At the end of this business, the the, uh, LA Times wrote a piece that will sound familiar to modern ears. Here's the Times. There may have been dirtier campaigns than this one, but not in my memory. And even if there were, they were made dirty by the politicians involved. The rest of us were mere bystanders, not active participants in the mudslinging. Now, to a great, but not total extent, It is a vast segment of the public that is doing the slinging, and I'm talking about the public on both sides of the Carnival Midway. Something evil has has either happened to us or been revealed about us in the passions for this strange election. For reasons I am not intellectually equipped to properly analyze, this political year has stirred up dark, stagnant juices of hatred in our unconscious. So that sounds familiar and wasn't anything really close to what we've seen in this campaign now. The impact of all of this, Johnson won, trounced Goldwater, was never an issue, certainly not an issue in the incendiary way that it was um, said to be here. You obviously have a much more pliable FBI director than the one in the mix at the moment. But how did it affect Johnson? Well, George Reedy, that press secretary we mentioned earlier, said this, a great deal of the president's difficulties, this would be after he is reelected in 64, can be traced to the fact that Walter had to leave. All of history might have been different if it hadn't been for that episode. The idea being that Jenkins was such a help to Johnson, kept him on the beam, saw problems before they happened, was such an important counselor that he might have kept Johnson from going uh, awry with Vietnam. Who knows? When they come to canonize political aides, wrote Bill Moyers, Jenkins will be the first summoned. For no man ever negotiated the shark-infested waters of the Potomac with more decency or charity or came out on the other side with his integrity less shaken. If Lyndon Johnson owed everything to one human being other than Lady Bird, he owed it to Walter Jenkins. Jenkins and his wife Marjorie stayed together until their separation in early 1970s. They never divorced. Jenkins went on to be a certified accountant in Austin, Texas. His life changed irrevocably forever. For Whistle Stop, I am John Dickerson of Face the Nation. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. 
makes us feel good about all the work we do here. Head over to iTunes, iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. Our producer for Whistle Stop is Jocelyn Frank. Happy birthday, Jocelyn. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire growing, robust roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who I like to think of as the Clark Clifford to this podcast's LBJ. We'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Mm-hmm.